creepy fucks and welcome to the let's talk horror channel podcast with me bp where on this episode i feel like shit <laughs> unfortunately uh, i've been ill for the last couple of weeks uh, and uh, you can probably tell my voice and i've got a chest infection to go on top of that so i'm fully on the meds but that doesn't mean that i'm not going to bring out an episode no matter how i feel i'm always so grateful and it honestly means well to me that all of you out there that still listen to the show that still continue to be on this journey with me you're so gracious with your time that i want to do everything i can to not let you down and to be honest i was very close to not releasing uh, an episode because of how i feel but that's not fair on you and i don't want to do that so i'm here i'm here and I'm releasing an episode no matter how I feel. Is this gonna be the best episode I've ever done? I'm gonna try. And if it does sound like at any point that I'm dying, it probably means that I am, or this episode would never come out because I'm already dead. And if that is the case, then I'll be haunting every single one of you. But with that out the way, let's get into it. So we're gonna be talking on this episode all about Candyman. A movie that I'm going to get into properly in deep discussion because this is a film that is a prime example as to why I still love to do the solo episodes. Well, I say love to do them. It's a love-hate relationship. I love doing them because Candyman is a film that I have and feel like I have a personal connection with. And it is a film that for me personally ticks every box. But also, like I said, with a personal connection, it's a film that I watched very early on in my journeys through horror, a very young age. I mean, way too young to watch this movie. But it really started a lot of things for me in regards to how I feel about horror, how I feel about film, and I'm going to get into that. But also, the hate part of doing the solo episodes is that even though this is what the show was when I first started, when I first started the show, I think like five, six, maybe seven episodes in, every episode I did was a solo episode. I mean, I never thought I was going to have guests on the show. So, I mean, I never thought anyone would want to come on the show. It was never an intention. It was never thought in my mind. But now... I can't not have guests because my anxiety when I do these solo episodes is monumental and uh, I really struggle with them because I want to try and bring out the best episodes I can for you. And I honestly don't know if I can do that with the solo episodes because I think that everything I do is shit and I really hope that you don't think that. But as I said, Candyman is a prime example of uh, a movie that is a really good one for me to speak about and do a solo episode and go proper in-depth, very honest and very passionate about, like I try and do on every episode. But as well as that, make sure that you all listen right until the end, because we have the segment that I've had since I've started the show, Your First Time, where I'm going to read out some first-time horror movie memories from some amazing people that sent them over to me. And to be honest, I think 
this is probably the most that we've ever had on the show. So stick with me, no matter how much I sound like I'm dying, we're going to get through this. And I really, truly hope that you enjoy it. So Candyman was released in 1992. It's directed by Bernard Rose and it is starring Virginia Madsen as Helen Lyle. I, remember, I'm going to get all these wrong. Tony Todd, the legendary Tony Todd as Candyman himself. Casey Lemons, Cassie Lemons as Bernadette. Vanessa Estelle Williams as Anne-Marie and Xander Berkeley as Trevor Lyle. The film sits on IMDb at 6.7 out of 10, and on Rotten Tomatoes it is 79%. Google synopsis-wise. Intrigued by local legends, Helen investigates the myths and superstitions surrounding the one-armed Candyman. However, she confronts her worst nightmare when a series of murders start taking place. Does he count as one-armed? I don't know, I mean, he's, he's got a hook hand. But now, as usual, even on the solo episodes, I'm going to give you my account of everything that happens scene by scene in the movie, but in my own way. So the film opens with an iconic aerial shot, and already we get to hear one of the most amazing yet terrifying voices and see a shitload of bees. Now, this is something that I'm going to get into properly later, but what an iconic opening to a movie when you've got this incredible aerial shot of Chicago. It just looks so good. And I remember the first time I saw it, it's, I mean, it was mostly unlike anything anybody had ever seen at that point, and it blew my mind. We first meet our main lady of the movie, who loves a cigarette and a good story, one that randomly involves Ted Raimi. That's right, he pops up, trying to be super cool in this. We all know he's not the coolest guy, is he? And straight away, we learn of this idea of the Candyman and how to summon him and then get killed by his big hook. Also, Virginia Madsen has a lovely smile. She's having a chat with her lecturer slash boyfriend, but they seem way too clever to me to make me want to listen. So I, I couldn't give a shit. I zoned out. Let's move on to the next scene. Helen Virginia Golden Smile Madsen is having a chat with some cleaners about more of these urban legend stories they have heard heard about, and she is slowly becoming obsessed with these stories and the idea, and already doing some investigating. She even knew to look behind her mirror the clever sod, but unfortunately she isn't that clever because the silly bugger did it. She said Candyman five times. Her friend didn't, but she did, so we know Golden Smile Madsen is absolutely fucked. That bit is always a bit mental as well, but she seems to know exactly everything. Like, she looks behind this bloody mirror that's on the wall and she's just like, check this shit out. I'm fucking best investigator in the world. But I suppose, you know, the movie's got to work somehow, right? But as I say, she said it, she's fucked, right? Well, not just yet, though, because now Helen is out doing even more investigating and heads over to Caprini Green, where she's trying to find out more info about it all. And there's a lot of people trying to intimidate them. But Helen is double R'd and she's got a little camera to take some fancy little snaps of a place that's seen better days for sure. Helen is reluctant in her mission to uncover more and goes into the murdered lady's building and sneaks through the mirror with a secret room very much like hers. But in this one, it has some super rad graffiti art of the candy man on the wall and some candy with blades in them. Remember, kids, always check your candy. One of the residents in the building has a bambino and he's telling the ladies all she knows about what happened to the murdered lady. And she believes 
in the candy man which is seems to be a common occurrence around or within the walls of caprini green candy man is something that they believe is in existence and uh, they're all pretty afraid of him i mean understandably you know if somebody's going around with a hook hand trying to murder people yeah you'd be pretty scared shitless Helen is now at dinner with her boyfriend and some posh twat who is telling more of the mythology of Candyman and how he came to be. But like a lot in this movie, is it all a story? Is it real? I mean, who fucking knows right now, but I'm sure we'll learn more. Helen is back at Caprini Green and making friends with some kid and trying to peer pressure him into showing her where Candyman is. And he tells her he's in the toilet of all places where we get another story of another victim but this time it was a kid who got candy manned obviously like the absolute mug she is helen goes into the shit infested toilets with shit literally all over the walls the doors i mean it's fucking everywhere i mean funny enough doesn't even seem to be inside the toilet because that's full of fucking bees but then candy man turns up but is it the real candy man no no it's not but he does say that he is and then hits her over the bonds with his hook, which is not a euphemism for his dick, but jokes on him because the next scene is at a police station where Helen, who is sporting a Rocky Balboa style fucked up eye, picks the fake pack Candyman out in an old school lineup and all is well. Candyman isn't real and life can move on like fuck he can. And at the moment as well, within these this movie, these scenes are really moving along at a pace where it's from one scene to another. There's really not a lot of time to relax within this movie, which is actually quite surprising in regards to the type of movie it is and how it's constantly trying to build tension and dread and so on. But something always seems to be happening in this movie, and I really like that there's not really much time where you can sit there and sort of zone out apart from the bit i said earlier where the people were talking all like intellectual shit and i was like well i don't understand that move on but other than that you know the pace of this movie even up until now and for where it goes it works at a really good pace so this is where it all really starts an intimidating voice echoes through a car park saying helen that's an awful impression. I, I, I won't do that again. And again, Helen. I tried it again, but I don't know why. I think it's just instinct. I won't do it again. And then our first glimpse of the Candyman himself, the real one who looks like a classy motherfucker, but somehow sexy as hell, but terrifying as fuck. I could stop now uh, and talk about how incredible Tony Todd is, but I'm going to talk so much about that later that i'm not going to go into it too much now but straight away it's such an amazing iconic introduction to this character of candy man and once again it felt like especially when i watched it for the first time something that just stood out to me with this character and the way T tony todd played him there's just something to him and it's incredible and as i said we're going to go into that a lot but here he says the classic line be my victim and some other cool shit and shows his messed up hook hand and somehow helen then wakes up in a bathroom that's not hers all covered in blood it's the nice lady's house from earlier that had the kid and the dog but unfortunately no longer because the dog is had his head cut off which is you know which sucks we all know look you don't kill dogs in movies and to be honest they i mean it does look pretty real so i i never like that bit never will but I suppose it's the, it, it serves a purpose for the story. 
I mean, they just could have done it in a different way, maybe. So Helen is thinking, what the fuck is going on here? And no fancy smile can get her out of this one. She picks up a meat cleaver and enters the apartment further that's covered in blood. The nice lady is distraught and convinced Helen has taken her baby and attacks her. And Helen cuts the lady's arm deep and then the police storm in and this does not look good for Helen at all. So she's now at the police station covered in blood, completely confuffled as to what the shit has happened. But she's under arrest and needless to say, she's pretty fucked and they want to know where the baby is and obviously she doesn't know so off to jail she goes but here she gets her next vision of the candy man and it seems as though he has the baby so he's he's sort of real he isn't real he can steal babies but he can still go through mirrors some of it don't make sense to me but you know i mean it's well good though in it so does it matter probably not so somehow she's allowed out of jail. Apparently it's because they want to find the kid. I'm not a lawyer, so what do I know? But Helen is going through the pictures she took and stum stumbles upon a pic with Candyman in the background, which gives her the willy-nillies. So she heads to the bathroom for the, her meds when Candyman's hook comes right out of the medicine cabinet for a full-on jump scare that definitely gave some people some shitty pants. And she understandably legs it but there is no escaping him now and he's everywhere. He tells her he has to kill her so he can live on through fear and she will be immortalized with it. He grabs her neck with his hook hand, but just in time her mate turns up. But that's good for Helen, but not so much for her mate who gets full on Candyman. But once again, Helen has been framed for the murder by the Candyman. Basically, he's the master of criminality. Like, all he does is set her up in this, in the most fucked up ways, and then he's just like, bye, and then Helen's left to fucking deal with it. Helen is taken to the local mental institution because no one is going to believe her. She's tied to a stretcher, and Candyman is back using some magic to hover around like he's floating on air, and all he wants is one kiss, the dirty bastard. I mean, you know, like I said, setting up, setting her up for murder isn't the best way to chat someone up for a kiss. So Helen is off to see the quack for her first counselling session, who tells her she's basically fucked. So tell him what happened. But what's the point? He won't believe her because they're all thinks she's fucking bonkers. She says she can prove it by calling his name. But surely he won't turn up now in daylight in front of this bloody quack, this doctor who's here to be like, yeah, you're talking shit. Surely he's not going to turn up. Well, guess what? He bloody does. And he shoves his hook hand right through the doctor and then goes full Batman and flies out the window. This scene I absolutely love. I sort of mentioned it there as well, but I love the fact that there is no stopping Candyman. There is no time of day. There is nothing. It could be lunchtime, dinner time, breakfast, doesn't matter. You say his name, he's going to be there and he's going to fuck shit up and he's going to frame you for murder. But it's just such a cool scene. Once again as well, this film is really violent and it really takes it to very gory, bloody places. And then he flies out the window and it looks fucking cool. So Helen is now escaping, dressed as a nurse and she's gone full renegade. And stupidly head, heads back to the place. Surely the cops will be trying to check first. But a scumbag cheating boyfriend is there with his new missus. And Helen isn't best pleased. And like that, 
She buggers off where Candyman is in her head, still trying to peer pressure her into being his victim. Straight away, her boyfriend has got another girl because he's a dickhead. Rightfully so, she's pissed right off about it. So night falls and she heads back to Caprini Green in search for the missing Bambino and the Candy Cave. Which she finds pretty easily and sees some art on the wall which looks like it's telling the real story of how Candyman came to be. And for some reason, he's there having a nap. Which is mental because when did ghosts or demons or Candyman need sleep? Once again, it's this sort of logic as to, is he real? Is he not? Is he, put, is he flesh? I don't know. And there's a lot of that, obviously, within the movie and the sequels and all that sort of stuff. I don't know. It's a, it's a weird concoction of, look, he, he is real, but he's not real. He can pick up babies and have a nap, but he can also do loads of supernatural shit. But anyways, Helen stabs him, but it does nothing. And he's all happy she turned up. And with her surrendering, he makes his promise the child will be set free how nice of him and continues his sales pitch of immortality and gives her probably the most painful smooch ever with bees bloody everywhere once again it's another iconic imagery and another iconic piece of horror cinema or just cinema in general it's one of those scenes that you you just can't forget or the look of it the way it's done the thought of it actually happening and the pain it's something that sticks with you won't ever leave your brain, and it looks like it fucking sucks. She awakens once again and grabs a hook, but no one's home. But he did have time to write, it was always you, Helen, on the wall. But then she hears a baby's cry coming from within all the junk collecting outside. Basically, it's a huge pile of wood and rubbery and rubbish from within Caprini Green. I get, I guess in it's where they just try and get rid of all the shit and then set it on fire. So Helen heads outside and she goes straight into it to try and get the baby. But all the residents believe in Candyman to, is in there and they want to set fire to it. But unfortunately, Candyman, not good on his promise, is holding Helen and the baby within the fire. But she manages to stab him with a fire stick and tries to crawl out with the baby. A big chunk of wood falls on Helen as she as she continues to crawl out, but she's determined to get the baby to safety. Even though she is fully on fire, she manages to do it, even though it costs her hair and her life. And, you know, she, she's definitely dead. And at her funeral, the residents of Caprini Green all pay their respects to the lady with the beautiful smile. After the funeral, the nasty ex-boyfriend, who for some reason, even though he's a dick and cheated on her, is really upset about it all, even though he's just basically a son of a bitch. But he's also an absolute idiot, because he decides to say the words in the mirror, but he's not saying Candyman. He's saying Helen five times, which is a bit of a stretch, but he does it anyway. And guess what? Helen, the new candy queen, turns up and hooks the cheating bastard and leaves him in the bathtub, gutting like a fish. As the film ends with one of the most iconic movie scenes ever made and one that has lived rent-free in my head for a long time. Especially, you know, when it's dinner time and I'm standing in the kitchen cooking. Very often, uh, you can hear me shouting, Alexa, play the Candyman theme. But this film is a tale not about love, but peer pressure and betrayal. And it comes to an end like something very Shakespearean, but with more blood and hooks and burn victims and, and a sexy Tony Todd and a Hollywood smile. So there we go. That's essentially everything that happens in the movie. But in my own way, 
every time I watch a movie, no matter it was, of course, I always leave with questions like, is he real? Is he not real? Fuck knows. But then at the same time, it's one of those things that I really don't care about overthinking because I fucking love this movie. So I don't really care about it too much. It's just a little bit weird in some places. But that, as I said, is essentially everything that happens in the movie. But now let's move on to some production info on the movie. Let's get into a little bit more detail in regards to the details of how this film was made. So the Candyman character originated in Clive Barker's short story, The Forbidden, published in volume five of Barker's six volume books of blood anthology collection. And although, like I've just said, that it is based essentially on a Clive, a character from a Clive Barker short story, we all know if you know that book and you know the movie, it's very loosely based. There's so many different changes. It's essentially a different thing. But there is still something about this movie that feels very Clive Barker-esque. I could be the only person that thinks that. I could be looking way too much into that. But I don't know what it is. But author Clive Barker's short story is set in native Liverpool and was about segregation and the culture of poor urban areas. So there is the essence of that, but obviously it's definitely not set in Liverpool. For Candyman, the film's director, Bernard Rose was so shocked by Chicago's dynamic architecture and large amount of prejudice that he decided to change the Liverpool location to Chicago. Rose scouted locations in Chicago and found Cabrini Green, a housing project notorious for its poor construction, violence and high robbery rates. The project was also located in between high class neighbourhoods, meaning that the character of Helen could feel Caprini Green's chaos from a safe apartment not too far away. Rose wanted to showcase those that are living in poor neighbourhoods as regular human beings that are trying to get by, which is why he avoided tropes that are common in most American ghetto stories, such as gangs and drugs. He tried to steer away from that and trying to depict Caprini Green and the residents of it as real people, because, I mean, they are. Caprini Green is a real place, and the people in it are real people. According to journalist Steve Bagora, Bagaira, Bagira, never going to get that right, am I? One source of inspiration may have been a pair of articles that he wrote for the Chicago Reader in 1987 and 1990 about the murder of Ruthie May McCoy, a resident of Chicago's Abbott Homes housing project. In 1987, McCoy was killed by an intruder who entered her apartment through an opening behind the bathroom's medicine cabinet. Sound familiar? Well, it's because it's in the movie, that's why. Rose's screenplay garnered a huge amount of attention in the casting agencies, and Virginia Madsen and Tony Todd instantly tried to get parts to have a chance to work with the filmmaker. Eddie Murphy was the original choice. I know what you're thinking. You're like, you're probably doing what I did. Eddie Murphy as the Candyman. Look, he's funny. He's not going to be the Candyman, right? But the filmmakers could not afford him. So it wasn't even on talent. It was just the fact that they couldn't afford him, which doesn't surprise me. Tony Todd, who was perfect for playing the killer as he was six foot five and physically fit, recalled that there was scepticism from his colleagues about him playing the Candyman due to the number of bee stings injuries that he would have to receive. But he persisted as he wanted to work with the director. 
While the Candyman's background is unknown in the original story, Tony Todd came up with the backstory for the character in the film. Virginia Madsen was friends with Rose and his then wife, Alexandra Peake. And Madsen was originally to play the role of Helen's friend, Bernie, while Pig was to play Helen. But as the shooting was about to commence, Pig discovered that she was pregnant, so the role of Helen was offered to Madsen. Three days of Candyman's filming was spent on Caprini Green, while the other days were spent in scenes on Hollywood sound stages. With plainclothes law enforcement by their side, Todd and Madsen went into the buildings of Caprini Green as part of researching their roles, which was useful, but distressing experience for both actors. For playing the Candyman, Todd tried to act as a primeval boogeyman, without overacting the part, which was tricky to do. Also, boogeyman is one of the words that always makes me laugh because I never think of it being something sinister. I just imagine it being somebody that dances all the time. So thank God that's not who the Candyman is. He worked with Bob Keane on the Candyman's look. Keane first had Todd wear a machine-controlled fake right arm but found the movements of the arm too strict. Then Keane came up with the idea of having Todd wear a hook to indicate the Candyman's supernatural being. The film used more than 200,000 real honeybees throughout and most of the crew wore bodysuits to be protected from the stings. Although all of them faced at least one sting, Tony Todd negotiated a bonus of $1,000 for each of the 23 bee stings that he received during filming. In shooting the film's climax, where the Candyman sends 500 bees into Helen's face, he first had the bees placed in his mouth by using a protective mouthpiece to avoid as many stings as possible. Gary had to use freshly hatched, non-stinging and non-flying bees for the scene as Madsen was very allergic to stings. So she was allergic, she was fucked. The film's score was composed by Philip Glass. According to Glass, it has become a classic, so I still make money from that score and gets checks every year. And to be fair, so he should do, because like I've already mentioned, the theme to Candyman is one of my favourite themes of all time. The movie had its world premiere at the 1992 Toronto International Film Festival, playing as part of its Midnight Madness lineup. It was released on the 16th of October 1992 in the United States, where it made 25.7 million. The film itself had a budget of 6 million, so it made some money back. The movie was nominated for awards, but it was Virginia Madsen who won the most accolades for her performance, with winning the Best Actress Award at the Chainsaw Awards, the Saturn Awards, and the Avoriaz Fantastic Film Festival, which, once again, probably pronounced incredibly wrong, but I'm sure you figure it out. The film received mostly positive to mixed reviews, where a lot of critics enjoyed its intelligence of understanding fear and how to portray it. They like how well it creates atmosphere and the way it was filmed and also praise the performances as well as being able to incorporate a clever look at social commentary. So there we go. That's some production info, a little bit more detail in regards to everything that went into making the movie. I love adding these bits into the episodes. I always have and always will continue to do it because It isn't just the conversation, whether it's just a solo episode like this or whether it's with guests. I love the conversations that I get to have, but it's the inner workings of these movies that have always been a passion of mine. And a lot of you out there that listen 
you might not know the inner workings or what goes into making these movies, which is why I really like adding the production info in there, because it gives you a little bit more insight into what may be one of your or some of your favourite movies. But as well as that, obviously, I've done that. I'm going to give you some facts on the movie as well. So number one, Candyman could have actually starred Sandra Bullock. Producer Alan Powell, Powell, one of them, said that that had Madsen not been able to step into the role of Helen, the part would have likely been offered to Sandra Bullock, who was still a relatively unknown actress at that point. Now, Sandra Bullock, she's good at what she does. I don't think that she would have been able to capture the complexities of this role as well as Virginia Madsen. So I'm really happy that it all worked out in 1992 or whenever that she was able to do this role because I think she put so much into it and you can see that on screen. It makes it work. Her chemistry with Tony Todd, it's a blessing that she got to take the role. Number two, there was an actual Candyman killer. Though the Chicago-based legend of Candyman is a work of fiction, there was an actual serial killer known as Candyman, or the Candyman. Between 1970 and 1973, Dean Cole, Cole is a word I can't pronounce, once again, I'm never going to get any better, kidnapped, tortured and murdered at least 28 young boys in the Houston area. Cool, Cole, whatever, earned his nickname from the fact that his family owned a candy factory. Basically, there was a real piece of shit going around called the Candyman, doing some nasty shit. Number three, Sweets to the Sweet, which is written at the crime scenes, is a line from William Shakespeare's Hamlet. And I think you can see an influence from Shakespeare throughout this movie. Once again, I could be the only one, but I see it's there. Number four, director Bernard Rose had Virginia Madsen and Tony Todd take ballroom dancing classes together so they would have more of a romantic connection when playing their characters. Anything you can do to help a connection between your leads is always an amazing thing to do because that's going to show on screen. And like I've already mentioned, their chemistry in this movie is fantastic. Something in the way that they talk to each other, something in the way that they look at each other, it works so well. So doing that, getting them to have a nice little dance with each other. I mean, he is the boogeyman, isn't he? Once again, awful joke. Boo gives a shit. Number five, Virginia Madsen was hypnotised and given a trigger phrase on the set for her scenes with Candyman. But Madsen grew increasingly uncomfortable with this method, so asked for it to be cancelled. I mean, that's pretty fucked up, right? Like, imagine you can just literally, like, fall under the hypnotising trap, like, whenever. Oh, that's an, of course, that's going to make you uncomfortable. So uh, I'm, pretty, I'm, I'm glad that she turned around and was like, you know what, like, don't do this anymore, please. And number six, in the original script, Candyman's name was to be called 13 times, but writer and director Bernard Rose reduced it to five. I mean, thank God, imagine every time in the movie you see somebody and they say that 13 times. That's fucking mental, isn't it? So, yeah, he's lucky they changed it to five times. Otherwise, everybody would have fallen asleep. But there you go. There's some facts. you got to love them. Who doesn't love a fact? I mean, I do. If you don't, sorry but there's some. But after that, as usual, I'm going to go into how I truly feel about this movie. So at the start of this episode, I spoke a little bit as to 
why I think that this movie, or well, I know this movie is a prime example, one of the best examples of why I do the solo episodes. And that's because there are films that I have or feel like I have a very personal connection with. And this is one of them. Now, I don't mean a personal connection as in like I was on the fucking film set while they were making it. I mean, it was 1992, so I would have been like seven years old. So, no, I wasn't. And I'm allergic to bees, so I'd be dead now anyway. But what I mean by that is that this is a film that I watched very early on in my journey through horror. This is one of the films that every time I picture myself as a kid thinking about the early horror films I watched, whether it was like The Evil Dead or Alien or Brain Dead, Candyman is always one that is at the forefront of that. Not just because of how much of in awe I was of the movie itself and everything else I'm going to get into, but also because, like I said about it being a personal movie for me, is that it was one of the first movies that I saw that made me start thinking about, started the idea for me about filmmaking and acting. Because this is a movie that I love because it ticks every box. And it really started making me, from a very young age, start to think about my life as a filmmaker or as an actor, because the influence that this movie had on me was monumental at such a young age. It made me understand film, it made me understand cinema, it made me understand performances on a higher level, because like I've already mentioned, I do believe that this film works at a higher level than so many other horror movies that were out at the time. This felt fresh, this felt new, And even at a very young age, I still felt that. So I feel very connected to this movie. This film is one of those films that's almost like a comfort movie for me. It's one of those films that I love to watch. And I sit there and I'm still in awe of it every time I watch it. From whether it's the opening scene with this amazing aerial shot to the blood and the guts and the gore and how impactful those moments are or whether it's the quieter moments this film like i've said a million times already ticks every box for me so let's get into that a little bit more so the cinematography on this movie is absolutely amazing it looks fantastic and there's so much of a difference to how this movie looks than to so much that once again came out around it and before it And to be honest, even after it, it feels and looks like a very unique movie. And quite clearly, definitely had an influence on how movies looked after it. There's some absolutely beautiful, iconic cinema imagery within this movie that you can't forget. One that I've already mentioned is how incredible the shots are with Tony Todd with bees all in his mouth. Or whether it's when he opens up his coat and you get that haunted imagery of his ribs and all the bees and everything coming out. You've got any shot that is showing his hand with this giant fucking hook that's intimidating and scary enough. You know, this isn't like a nice, like, Captain Hook hook where he keeps it all nice and polished. This is a fucking gross-looking hook, and it's nasty. But yet, every time it's on the screen, the imagery is so iconic. And then you've got 
the cleverness of the movie in regards to it showing the gritty imagery of Caprini Green and everything that surrounds it. And then you've got the fancy swanky apartments that Helen lives in. And it really shows you how they're trying to differentiate the different lifestyles within the movies. So this film, in regards to how it is shot, how it looks, it looks incredible. And like I said, it is something that when I watched it, I was like, okay, this is amazing. And really started making me think about the filmmaking side of it. But it's not just the imagery, it's about the impact or the emotion of how, not only of what's being depicted on the screen, but also of how you feel when you're watching this. I remember the first time I ever watched this movie, it had me on the edge of my seat, tight chested, because this is a film where anything goes. When you see this film for the first time, you don't know what to expect, because obviously for one, you've never seen it before, so of course you don't know. But there's so much chaos to this movie in regards to the violence and the way it's depicted that you know that the next time Candyman turns up, it's going to be absolute mayhem and there's going to be blood and there's going to be guts, which then appeals to the horror fan in you. But also on a cinematic standpoint, and like I've said, it really leaves you on the edge of your seat. So as a, as a movie with structure, it works so, so well. One of the other things that I've already mentioned as well is the score, and the score is absolutely incredible from start to finish. Not even just talking about the Candyman theme itself, which I absolutely love, but the music in this just works so well. Sometimes it's a little bit odd, and but that works with the movie. It's a fantastic score, and there's something about it that elevates the movie as well to giving it that extra high level of cinema, the extra high level of class, because that's what this movie is. It feels like a very classy horror movie. And then one of the other things that I have to obviously talk about, because it's one of the most important aspects of the movie, and that is the performances. Now, Virginia Madsen, I've already talked a little bit about, yes, she's so good in this movie. And the fact that she was able to take the role rather than somebody like Sandra Bullock is, a, is an absolute blessing. It's amazing. And she works her ass off in this movie. You can tell she did. And she's absolutely fantastic. But Tony Todd's performance in this movie is something else. Now, on my phone, I have a list of performances that are incredibly influential to me. Ones that every time... I'm trying to look at something that might be a performance or anything like that, or take little bits or anything, or look at something, a performance as a whole. There are performances that always, always stand out to me, and I have to write them down. And one that's always, always been on that list is Tony Todd as Candyman, because it is such an incredible performance that, it doesn't even feel like it, like it, like it's real. Like it, it, it doesn't even make sense that somebody should be that good. It's insane. He is absolutely terrifying in this movie. He is the epitome of intimidating. His presence in this movie is scary enough on its own, irrelevant of 
the urban legend and the hook hand. His performance is so intimidating. But then when you add everything on top of that with the way that he looks and the way that he carries that, it's absolutely phenomenal. But it's not just about the aesthetic of it. It's the way that he uses his voice in this movie as well is absolutely incredible. There's the scene in the car park where we essentially first meet the real Candyman. And when he's saying, Helen, I'm not going to do the impression again, because obviously it was absolutely fucking awful. But when he's saying it and it's echoing through the car park, that is terrifying. And no one else could do that apart from him. Because he is a master of his craft and he's a master of understanding horror. He's a master of understanding what scares people. And he does this perfectly in this movie that it is one of the greatest performances I've ever seen in my life. And I thought this even back from when I watched it as a kid. My mind was blown by by how incredible he is. Because at the same time, He's such a good looking guy and it, and you can see that it would be so easy for anyone to fall under his sort of spell because of his look, because of how of a super duper handsome man he is. And when you think of horror movie monsters, you're thinking about people like Freddy Krueger or most of them wearing masks or people that are completely disfigured. You're not thinking of someone super handsome like Tony Todd who's so seductive and can charm the absolute shit off you but then be so terrifying and then once you add this aesthetic of how he looks and who he is it makes for like I said a, a perfect performance and as good as Virginia Madsen is in it and you wouldn't want to see anybody else in that role there is no one no one that I would ever want in this role as the Candyman other than Tony Todd. And he, just like so much in this movie, is a perfect piece of cinema. Of course, there are always going to be people out there that have their problems with it. There are always going to be people out there that disagree with, with me in regards to how highly I rate this movie. And sure, a lot of that is going to be nostalgia, and a lot of that is going to be that when I watched this movie for the first time when I was a kid, that you always get taken back to that moment and you get taken back to the scenes where you start to feel like you did the first time that you watched it. But that doesn't mean that this isn't a horror cinematic masterpiece because I truly believe that it is. So there we go. That is everything that I can talk about in regards to Candyman, a movie that you can quite clearly tell that I absolutely love. I hope that you think that it's the right decision that I chose this one as a solo episode because it means that I can get that little bit more personal with it. I can go into a little bit more detail about it because sometimes when I have guests on my shows, I don't necessarily want to sit here and tell them how much for God knows how long, how much I love the movie. It's not about me. When I have a guest on my show, it's about them coming on the show and enjoying it and having a good time. That's my number one priority. And if we get there to sit there and talk about a film that we both love, then that's a plus. But this is a film that, like I've mentioned, loads is a prime example of why I love doing the solo episodes because I can go a little bit more in depth about one of my favourite horror movies of all time. 
But then going off my experiences with this movie, now is the time where we're going to get into the segment, Your First Time. If you don't know what this segment is, this is where some amazing horror movie fans send me over on any of our social media platforms their first horror movie memory that they can remember, and I read it out on the show. So the first one was sent over to me on Instagram. It's a really short one, but some of the other ones are going to be a little bit longer as well. As I said at the start, there's quite a few to go through on this one, and no matter whether they're short ones, whether they're longer ones, doesn't matter. I love getting them through. I love reading them and sharing them on with you. So the first one was from Dale Mooney, who's Mooney underscore 1987, as I said, sent me this on Instagram. And he put that his first horror movie memory was watching The Shining when he was about seven or eight and being totally freaked out by the Grady twins. I mean, who who wasn't, right? So the next one, once again, was sent over to me on Instagram by my and I'm going to get this wrong, but my voltaic blood, which is on Instagram, it says that they are a TV series pilot in development of cyberpunks and vampires. And they sent me that one of their first horror memories was watching Halloween 4 with their cousins at a vacation home. They were maybe around around six years old, the part specifically where Michael chases Jamie in the old house and she has to go into some kind of ducts and afterwards... They have a heartfelt uncle-niece moment where Michael cries is wild. But thank you for sending that over. The next one was sent over to me but from Garrett, who is a rad dude with a rad channel. So make sure you go and follow him over on YouTube. Make sure you go and check out the Rad Pack podcast. The content he's bringing out is super fun. It's awesome. And you can find him at Born to Be Rad on Instagram where he sent this message saying that his first horror movie memory is he's his uncle showing him Texas Chainsaw Massacre at probably four years old. We got to the part where the hitchhiker got in the van and my dad came in and made my uncle shut it off. When they said, I think we picked up Dracula, that stayed with me forever. And I thought that it really was Dracula in the back of the van until he finally watched it as a teen. Thank you, Garrett, for sending that over. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre, if you watched that when you were younger, that's definitely one that got a lot of us. Another sent to me was from the Scare You podcast, which you can follow on Instagram and go and listen to one of the any podcast platform. And they sent me that sometime in the early 70s, someone had the nerve to drag me to Mel Stewart's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, a film ostensibly made for children, but so full of frightening scenes and images that it wound up scaring the shit out of me. Gene Wilder's performance is famously the stuff of nightmares. Awful things happen to children. Our heroes are almost sliced to death by spinning blades. A kid is sucked into a tube. A girl expands to the size of a submersible. It was, I am sure, my personal introduction to horror, a genre I would avoid for decades. It wasn't until I met Bradford Lorick, I could have said that wrong, so I apologise, the guy with whom I now co-host a horror podcast, Scare You, that I started to dip my toes back into those waters. So thank you, Bradford, but mostly thank you to Mel Stewart and Roald Dahl. This was all your fault. And that was from Eric from the Scare You podcast. And you know what? It's very difficult to disagree that even though it's covered in this chocolatey, childlike movie, Gene Wilder's performance sometimes feels a little bit like a horror movie-esque monster. 
and I absolutely love it. And funnily enough, is another is another performance that's on my list of most influential performances to me of all time. So couldn't agree more with Gene Wilder's terrifying performance. And another sent to me once again on Instagram was from the Hundred Horrors podcast, which is a horror co- horror comedy podcast. Which once again, head over to their Instagram, follow them, or head over to any podcast platform, give it a listen. And they put that my first ever horror movie experience was pretty funny, to be fair. It was Halloween night and they were 10 years old. I was sleeping around my friend Andy's house and there was a double bill of Carrie and the thing coming on. What a fucking evening, right? I'd never seen horror or a naked woman before and I had no idea what a period was. So as soon as Carrie started, I was completely overwhelmed. I pulled my sleeping bag over my head and listened to the Carrie and the thing and my friend narrated what has happened, what was happening in the sections with no dialogue. It's funny to think that I heard two of my favourite films in their entirety before I even watched them 10 years later. What an amazing first time memory. That is literally a memory, nothing visual. It was just something that you saw or heard under the confines of a blanket or a cover. But what a great story. And the last one I've got was sent to me over on Twitter by Dustin from the Flicks and Friends podcast, another podcast. Obviously, make sure you go and listen to them on any podcast platform. You can follow them on Twitter and on Instagram. Just look for the Flicks and Friends podcast. And he put that the that horror movie that got me into horror was Clive Barker's Nightbreed. Man, oh man, did Dr. Deckard haunt me. The movie is just as beautiful today as it was when I first seen it. It 100% deserves the 4K treatment that it got. I do love it when we get to get these classics on 4K. Look, I mean, I love still to this day watching things on VHS because of the nostalgia punch to the fucking balls that you get. But in a good way. I mean, I suppose there's never a good time to get punched in the balls unless you like it. But I love the nostalgia that I still get from watching VHS tapes. But sometimes when you're watching something like, say, The Shining on 4K, films like that that have this absolutely incredible look and cinematography and aesthetics, it's cool seeing the old school movies like that. So, So I'm with you when it comes to 4K transfers. But also, it's incredibly fitting... To end that on another Clive Barker movie, although, you know, this is very loosely based on the Clive Barker story, but still, his name's in there. So there you go, I've made it, and I hope that you have too. I hope that me being ill like I am hasn't affected this episode to the point of you not enjoying it, because my intentions for this show, for everything that I do, whether it's solo episodes, whether it's episodes with guests, I want to do everything I can to bring out the best episodes I possibly can for all of you that are always there to support my journey through horror, to continue to support the Let's Talk Horror channel. You know it means everything to me, not just doing this channel. As you all know, this is like therapy to me to to do this. So the thought of not being able to do this episode because of being ill and then letting people down by not bringing out an episode, it has really not helped my brain at all. And I truly hope that you've enjoyed this in-depth look into Candyman. But as I say, that's it. That's another episode done. 
This is now the second episode of 2024. And 2024 is such a big year for the Let's Talk Horror channel. Every single month, just like this one, you're going to get an, a podcast episode like you have for the last, blimey, just over three years now. It feels like I've been doing this for like 20 years. And it's tough. It's not easy. But I'm still here. I'm still going. And 2024, as I say, is going to be a big year. The podcast is still here. It's still there. Every month, you're going to get one. But also, the reason why it's such a big year is because now we have the new video podcast series called Welcome to the Creep Zone on our Let's Talk Horror channel, YouTube channel. It is exclusive to our YouTube channel. It's not going anywhere else. It's not being turned into audio for anything. I wanted to keep it so it's essentially a companion piece to this podcast. You know that I'm always, always trying to do more. And I honestly have always been trying to look into ways of doing more of the audio podcast episodes. But in all honesty, I can't. And it's not easy for me to do. So I really wanted to do everything I can to bring something out extra for you. Different to the podcast if I can't do this audio version. And that has now come out in our new video podcast series, as I said, welcome to the Creep Zone. It's still all the Let's Talk Horror channel. And if you're listening to this now and you have enjoyed this episode, you enjoy the episodes that you listen to of the podcast, then you will love the video podcast series because it is literally the same, very honest, in-depth, passionate conversations about whatever we talk about. But it's unrated, it's unfiltered, it's unedited. I don't edit it, I just literally trim the start, trim the end, it's done. Which means I have no idea what I'm going to say, how much I'm going to mess up. It could be absolute chaos, but just like these episodes, I want it to be as fun as possible. And to be honest, I'm really enjoying it. So please, if you haven't watched any of the episodes that are out so far, just head over to our YouTube channel, look for the videos that say Welcome to the Creep Zone, give them a watch and enjoy them and please subscribe because it helps so much. You, and I say this all the time, you know that you play the biggest part in the evolution of this channel and it reaching new audiences. You play the biggest part and that is the absolute truth. I can sit here, I can record, I can promo stuff, I can release episodes, I can release videos, I can work as hard as I possibly can, which is what I do all the time for this show. But you still have the biggest part to play because all you have to do is listen to these episodes and enjoy them. All you have to do is watch the new video podcast series and enjoy it. And if you do, share it on, rate it, review it, subscribe. And it's insane how much of an amazing positive impact that that has on the channel. You know I love doing this. You know I want to keep doing this. And I hope that you do too. And I really hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Now, as I said, solo ones aren't that easy for me to do because of my anxiety and I'm constantly worried that I'm not entertaining enough for you to want, want to listen to a full episode of this. So if you enjoyed this episode, let me know. If you didn't, then let me know as well. I want to know whether it's worth me doing these solo episodes anymore. As I say, I enjoy doing them and I love to be able to go into more in depth, especially on a personal aspect on some of these movies that started my journey through horror 
or films that I've seen along the way that have had an impact on me. I love talking about them because I'll be talking about them outside of doing these podcasts or these videos or anything. But it's important for me to know that it's worth it for the channel. So let me know. You know where all my social stuff, any social media platform, get on there. Let me know. And all I can do for now is to ask you to continue to support me on my journey through 2024. And just join us and be a creep.